Good morning, church. Anybody excited to hear from the Word of God this morning? Go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. I hope you've had a wonderful weekend. We had a really great weekend, a busy weekend. Amy yesterday got to go Miss Mindy Huffstetler's baby shower and... I heard there was lots of stuff given, and uh, there was a certain three-year-old that was running around opening up the presents for everyone, uh, and so for that I apologize, uh, but uh, we had a great time there, and then I got to go to Brother Soupy Campbell's 90th birthday party yesterday, 90 years young. The Bubster and I got to go, and we're blessed to be there. In fact, speaking of birthdays, I think somebody else has a birthday today, right? Hey, Chloe, happy birthday. How old are you now, Chloe? Eight years old. Happy eighth birthday, Chloe. Good to see you here today, all right? Praise the Lord for you. All right. John chapter 15. If you're there, you found your copy in God's Word. Today we're going to be looking at the topic of the fruit of the vine. Once again, our scripture memory verse is there. If you're there, would you stand for the honor of reading God's Word together? We have the opportunity to do this, to know and acknowledge that God has spoken to us, His people. John chapter 15, first eight verses, Jesus is continuing to speak to his disciples and he says this, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to him and thank him for his word this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the wondrousness that is your word. Lord, we thank you that you have decided to speak to us as your children. Father, we pray that we would be refined by the word of God, that we would... Um, be sharper as Christians, that we would, um, Father, see sin in our own lives and, and yet uh, be convicted. And that sin that leads to repentance, Father, would uh, bear fruit and grow us into the likeness of Christ. Lord, we pray that everyone here could say that they are abiding uh, in the vine, that they belong to the vine dresser, that they are one who bears fruit. Lord, we pray and ask all this for your help. Your Spirit's help to come and guide us and nurture us in the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a little bit of context here. We finished John 14 after, I think, I don't know, 30 weeks there. Uh, and now we're at uh, John 15. And Jesus is there with his disciples. He's in the upper room. Uh, and actually, they're now leaving the upper room. And as they're leaving, I guess, Jesus begins to speak a parable to them about this, this metaphor using a vine and the branches as the topic. Jesus uses this imagery that's going to drive home some lessons that are crucial as to his role that he and the Father fill in caring for the vineyard and ensuring that the vines he plants 
will be ones that produce much fruit. And so we're going to look at this with a bunch of topics today. And we're introduced in verse 1 to two main characters. The first character being Jesus, uh, the vine. Jesus, the true vine, as it says. And so let's look at all these topics as we walk through verse by verse God's word here today. Starting with Jesus, the true vine. Read verse 1 with me. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Notice here that Jesus doesn't simply say, I am the vine, right? He says, I'm the true vine. Now, this not, might, might not be familiar to us, an analogy that's certainly familiar to us, but this imagery, this picture, it had significant historical relevance to Israel. It would have been familiar to anybody who knew the Old Testament scriptures. One of the most common references to Israel is that of a vine having been planted by the Lord. In fact, you'll find it in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Hosea, and in the Psalms that we read, Israel is depicted as God's choice vine or God's vineyard. According to Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, the thing that stands out about all those passages in the Old Testament is when you go read them in their context, it's the fact that this imagery is always brought forth as a symbol of Israel's degeneration rather than her fruitfulness. The vine's not used as Israel being painted as a picture of one that bears much fruit. It's often depicted as, as one, God, help us because we don't bear any fruit. And so in the midst of that setting in Israel, God's chosen vine and vineyard, Jesus refers to himself as the true vine or the real vine. And I don't think he means by this that he's the true or real vine in contrast to the false or fake vine. Rather, I believe we're to understand Jesus is saying he is the true or real vine in contrast uh, to those symbols and shadows in the Old Testament. He's the substance. Remember, the book of Hebrews talks about this. We had all those former things, those things which pointed towards the substance, the reality that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We knew that Jesus is the one in the Old Testament who grew up in a dry land that's mentioned in the scriptures. He's the tender plant of the Lord that was planted by the Father in Isaiah 53. He's the branch that God made for himself that we read about in Psalm 80. He's the one who will bring forth fruit that not even the most rebellious of people can cause to go away. God is going to establish himself... And God is going to cause fruit to abound within his church. That's a promise that we're given from the scriptures. That God is the one who is going to cause fruit to abound from his church. So Jesus is that true or real vine that the Lord would plant in order to give true life to true branches within his vineyard. So Jesus here is pictured... As the true vine. But what do we see God the Father pictured as in verse 1? God the Father in this parable is the vine dresser, right? God the Father, the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine and the Father is the vine dresser. And if you recall, if you remember last week, we touched on this idea, the subject of the council of peace or the covenant of redemption. Do you remember that? It was, it was with the covenant that God made an eternity past among the Godhead. Remember, this is the basis for all redemption. Before the beginning of time, God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all made a covenant together that they would enact this plan of redemption. 
Jesus would come down to earth. The Spirit would apply the work of Christ to our lives. All of this happened because God made a covenant before the world ever began to save a people for himself. And and we have another allusion to that exact covenant we talked about last week here in our text. We find the Father, he's the one that plants the vine, the vine grows, and it bears fruit. It's the source of fruit. Not only has the Father sent the vine, but the vine then gives life to the branches, and the branches then bear fruit. This is all in accordance with what that covenant that God made in eternity past. This is a glorious thing. God's plan of redemption, you understand, wasn't, wasn't a plan B. God's plan of redemption wasn't a reaction to sin in the Garden of Eden. God had a plan of redemption before time even existed. It's a wonderful thing because if that's God's plan of redemption, then he is going to cause it to come to fruition, isn't he? He's trustworthy in his character. Now in this vineyard, we're introduced to a vine which represents Jesus, a vine dresser which represents the Father, we also have a couple other references. We don't have them listed in our notes here, but we have references here to branches. And these branches are ones that represent true and false Christians. So the branches are to represent in this, this little parable. We also have reference here to fruit. And we know that fruit here is a reference to, to good works in the lives of true Christians. I want to look at this in verses 2 and 6 of John chapter 15. I want to read verse 2 and verse 6 for you as we consider our next subject. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, who's the he there? That would be the vine dresser, God the Father, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he, being God the Father, prunes it so that it may bear fruit. Down to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Okay, so let's follow this together, right? The the father's the vine dresser. He's the one who cares for the vineyard. It's his vineyard. And in his care for the vineyard, the father prunes the branches that are on the vine to ensure that fruit is produced. I want you to hear this. The goal of the vine dresser is that much fruit would be born in the branches. And if you've ever done any gardening of any sense whatsoever, you understand this, right? You don't just plant seeds for things to not bear fruit, right? That would be, you would feel like a failure in that sense. If you you put together a garden and you wanted to plant, say, tomatoes, and you had a a beautiful looking green leaves on that that, that plant, but no tomatoes, (laughs) That would not be your goal, would it? Your idea and understanding what you're putting together this garden is when I plant those tomato seeds, you know what I want? I don't want just tomatoes. I want the biggest, ripest, juiciest tomatoes I can possibly have. It's the same way with the father in this parable. The father's goal is not so that we'd bear little fruit. The father's goal is that we would bear much fruit. And we're going to see that again. We have to understand that in order for that to happen, true branches will have to bear the fruit. That's what we see in the heading of this text. True branches bear fruit. Think about this together with me. In the first instance of this parable, we're told that the Father takes away every branch that does not bear fruit. We're to take that to mean this, friends, and I want you to hear me. it's, it's, It's important, it's essential, it's vital that you hear this. This is to say 
that nobody can call themselves a Christian and at the same time bear no fruit of good works in their lives. It's an oxymoron for any of us to call ourselves a Christian without good works or good fruit to affirm that. If you are a branch that doesn't bear fruit, friends, according to this text, you've got great cause to be concerned about whether or not you're truly united to the vine. So you really need to carefully consider the idea, am am I in my life bearing the fruit and evidence of good works? And if, if I'm not, is it the case that I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it that I have yet to call out to receive the grace of God that I might be born again and attached to the vine? If that's the case, don't hesitate. Cry out to the Lord even this morning and ask Him, Father, grant me your spirit. Produce good works in my life that I might know that I'm a child of yours. Now, I want you to notice something. There, there is a world of difference between bearing a little fruit and bearing no fruit. There is a heaven or hell difference between bearing some fruit or little fruit and bearing no fruit. It's an important distinction to keep in mind. See, none of us as the children of God, right, produces as much fruit as we'd like. I dare say if I were to ask you, are you producing enough good works, your answer would be, yeah, I'm killing it, right? No, not at all. None of us as Christians bear enough good fruit in our minds, but if there is no fruit in our lives, no evidence that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, that we are living under his headship, that he is our king and our everything, if there's no good works at all, then it's a good indication that we might be dead branches. Because it's a certain thing. It's a thing you can put all your confidence in that true Christians will bear good fruit and works. These two things go hand in hand. It's not that good works make you a Christian. We know that. I had some more to talk about with that, but I I want you to understand. I hope we know that. True works don't make you a Christian. You can never do enough good works, bear enough good fruit to make you a Christian. But true Christians are going to bear fruit. It's basic Christianity 101. True branches can't help but to bear fruit because they're truly united to the vine. And friends, the scriptures testify of this. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, Paul says this. He says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk within them. So if you're truly belonging to God... If you are his workmanship, you will walk in good works. Titus 2.14, speaking of the Lord Jesus, Titus says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. So it's not that we should just look to see if there are any good works in our lives. But if we long to Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to be zealous for those good works. In chapter 3, 8 of the same letter to Titus, that pastoral epistle says, This is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These are things that are good and profitable for men. 
Titus says, those who believed in God should be careful to engage in good deeds. This seems uh, to be something that should be on our minds and our hearts daily considering this. James 2, 17, of course, very familiar text. You know, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The scriptures are, are, are full of this idea that if you are a true branch, if you are a true Christian, then you will bear good fruit. But I want to ask this question as we transition to our next heading here. What constitutes good fruit? What, what does that mean? What does that look like to bear good fruit? We've talked about this. In fact, we've talked about this to be pivotal to the Christian life. So if it's the case that true Christians bear good fruit, then what is good fruit? Well, it's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Let's consider this. I want to be clear about this. Because I think sometimes we can give consideration to a text like this, much like we have in the past couple weeks, and it can cause us to be easily overwhelmed. It's really easy to see how someone can say, wow, you know, I don't have enough good works in my life. That's not enough. So I really need to get busy on this. Maybe the best way for me to get busy on this is to go to seminary, I guess, or, or to just become a missionary or go to do this or that major change in my life or to some sort of formal ministry. But that's not the case. Those are great works. Those are good works. And God does call some folks to those particular good works. But it's not the end-all, be-all of what it means for a Christian to bear good fruit. We bear good fruit when we bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's called, if you put two and two together, the fruit of the Spirit. See, friends, when you love one for another, when you have love for God, you have joy in your soul, when you give consideration what God has given you and you are stirred up in your heart to, to, to have joy about that, it's a good work. When you're patient with those around you, when you're kind, good, or faithful to the Lord, whether it be in your callings and vocations, when you are gentle, when you exercise self-control, these are all fruits of the Spirit. These are things that aren't supposed to be just summoned to some childhood song and taken lightly. No, these, these are gifts that God gives His children and that you are able to bear fruit by. And it's all His doing. Church family, we bear good fruit when we love and serve our husbands and wives as we ought within the God-given roles. That's bearing good fruit. Children, students, when you obey your parents or when you care for your brothers and sisters as you ought, that's bearing good fruit. When you do your work faithfully in your workplace, that's bearing good fruit. When you, it's a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every situation really is an opportunity for you to bear good fruit and prove that you are a child of God that's been set apart for the world to bring glory to Him. If that's the case, if bearing the good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is what it means to bear good fruit, I, I want you to consider what the ultimate end of a dead branch is. We've talked about the idea that those dead branches, the Bible says, God will do away with, He'll throw away. What, what does that mean? What is the ultimate end of a dead branch? So if there's fruit, when we're truly united to the vine, to Christ, but there's no fruit in your life, then as we've said, you've got great cause to be concerned because of what we're told of the ultimate end of the branches that are cut off. Friends, when you read this text, it's a very sobering text. And it's not my intent to scare you or beat you up on this. But if you aren't bearing any fruit, 
You continue along this path that you're going. The scriptures describe what your end is going to be. It's a very fearful thing to consider. Look at verse 6 again with me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. They're burned. The sad truth is there are people in the church who think that they are united to Christ. But in reality they're not and they'll end up being sent to hell. There are tares among the wheat in the church. There are goats among the sheep. That's a scary thought. It's a scary thought to think that there are people who have been baptized, who have taken vows of church membership, who have come to the Lord's table, who have tithed regularly, people who have done all sorts of things on the outside, things that might make them look like Christians, but people who have absolutely no part of Christ. You remember the people in Matthew 7? Who said that Jesus, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? His response was what? Depart from me. I never knew you. You were never united to me. Friends, this is a great cause for us to examine ourselves. Because if we come to the conclusion that we are in Christ, man, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. But if you do not yet belong to Christ then every moment's an opportunity for you to cry out to God for mercy that he might save you from your sins in the punishment of everlasting judgment. For those who do bear fruit, the Bible says that the Father prunes those branches. Now, according to experts, when it comes to pruning grapevines, as I have no idea what that's like, but I did a little bit of research this week, uh, there are several, I've just recognized, I probably could have just called Travis and asked him what it's like, but uh, there are several stages and ways that this is done. One method is, is pinching the tip of healthy growth so that it doesn't grow too fast, okay? There's also a method called topping, where a foot or two of new growth is removed to prevent the loss of an entire shoot. There are several various ways that pruning is done in regards to grapevines. But likewise, the Father has various ways by which he prunes all who are united to his Son. And I want us to look at three main ways that the Father prunes his people, prunes his true branches. These are people who are believers, who are connected to the true vine, and yet still need some clipping away, still need some, some pruning of their own to be made into the image of the Son, to bear much fruit. First off, we're going to look at the idea of pruning by discipline. Pruning by discipline. Yeah, it's going to be one of those, okay? Pruning that comes away by the Father's discipline. Friends, pruning isn't always pleasant. Okay? However, it's necessary if we hope to bear a good harvest of fruit. Amen. Branches that sprout wild shoots or twigs, they're to be pruned. These are, are areas in our sinful lives that need to be cut off or removed. Sometimes that pruning process hurts. <laughs> I'm sure we can all attest to that, can't we? Dying to self and taking up our crosses to follow Jesus is not work that comes easily. It's painful. You may lose friends, family members along the way. But even though it hurts in the process, in the end, it's still the best thing for us. John Calvin, the old reformer, said this with regard to the Father pruning in our lives. He says, Our flesh abounds... 
and su- su- superfluities. Superfluities. I had that practiced and I messed it up. Uh, and destructive vices. And it's too fertile in producing them. And because they grow and multiply without end, get this, if we are not cleansed or pruned by the hand of God, if, if we do not go to the Lord, examine ourselves, and pray for the Spirit to prune these areas in our life, you know what's going to happen? They'll continue to bear that bad fruit, which will prevent us from good growth. Again, this pruning, it's not always pleasant. The writer of Hebrews knew it all too well when he said in chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 and 11, he said, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Pruning by discipline. The second one is kind of connected to the first one. It's, it's, it's pruning by affliction. The, the second way the father prunes his children to bear good fruit is by affliction. Let's think about this. Psalm 119 verses 67 and 71 David says this, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. David says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. This is completely countercultural, okay? This, this is uh, contrary to what the people of this world might think, isn't it? See, affliction is not some arbitrary thing that just sort of happens to us in life. It's not because of bad karma or bad luck. As hard as it for us be, to be to, not, to understand this, all affliction that comes into the life of the believer is custom designed for each of us by the hand of God. Sometimes that affliction comes as a rod for the purpose of disciplining us for some particular sin we've committed. And the purpose of that discipline would serve the very same purpose we have in disciplining our children as parents. Why do we discipline our children? To correct them. We discipline to correct our children, to instruct them in wisdom and godliness. The same is true for the Lord's discipline upon us. The scriptures clearly teach the fact that the parents that withhold correction from their children, it is an unloving thing for them to do. You know what that means? If your child has earned discipline in some way and you do not give it to them as a parent, then you're not loving them. That's a hard truth. We discipline to correct our children. This is equally true of our Heavenly Father. And that's a comforting thing, isn't it? The Lord only disciplines and prunes those whom He loves. So if we belong to Him, we should expect to be disciplined or pruned by Him from time to time. That discipline sometimes comes in the form of affliction. Sometimes, not always. Not all affliction is a result of some particular sin on our part. There are times where the Lord sends the affliction upon his people, not to discipline us for sin, but for the purpose of our sanctification. Because in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that affliction, he's conforming us more to the image of Christ. We are drawn closer to Christ. We have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. But friends, either way, 
knowing the origin of our affliction, should bring to us a sense of peace or comfort. Just think about this. What a terrible thing it really is to believe that you just are some victim of bad luck and there is no purpose at all behind your suffering. Can you imagine that? That kind of thinking has made a number of people absolutely bitter in this life. The truth is, we might not always know the exact reason why it is we are afflicted, but nevertheless, there is no doubt that the Lord has a purpose behind it, and it will be for our good and His glory. We might not be able to see that on this side of heaven, friends, but it's in the Word of God, and it's to be trusted. He's a loving Father who even, in His affliction, is pruning and shaping us to the, the image of Christ. It's, it's a perfect analogy. I, I can tell you as the father of a three-year-old, of an, a very active, precious little girl, that I um, hate to say this, but I've brought her some affliction. <laughs> there have been times, because of my love for her, that we had to go through a, a couple seconds, couple minutes of affliction. But why? It's because I... I've been charged by God to instruct her about who God is and his love for her. And if I'm not painting that picture for her that there is a right that God has given us in his grace and there is a wrong that leads to destruction, then I don't love her. Friends, it's the same with the Lord. There are times where there are things that are brought upon us for our good and we don't see them as good and, and, and they may not be. And yet he's faithful to use it. For our good. This is what David says in Psalm 119.68. He says, You are good and you do good. <laughs> he recognizes the hand of the Lord working in his life. That's in the same context as the previous verses. Let me ask you. When you think about the people outside of Christ, what person can look upon their affliction and confess that it's good for them? That, that's hardly the common confession in the world today, Right? But it ought to be the common confession of those who are in Christ. Why? Well, again, because we know that our God is sovereign. There is nothing in this life that happens to us apart from his gracious will toward us. There are no accidents in life. He controls it all. If he doesn't, then we have a real problem and every one of us should be concerned. The fact of the matter is, do we really believe that the Lord works all things together for our good? If we do, then we must also believe our afflictions are serving some good purpose, whether we understand it or not. Finally, we see, not only is he pruning us by discipline or pruning us by affliction, but pruning us by the scriptures. Not only does he use discipline, does he use trials to pursue us and prune us, but he also uses his scriptures to prune us. Look at John uh, 15.3. The Bible says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Christ's word is also used to clean or to prune us. That word clean there that's used in verse 3, it's the same word used for prune in verse 2. I don't know why exactly it's translated like that. We see a similar thing in Psalm 119 verse 9 where the psalmist says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, by keeping it according to your word. Friends, whenever we're under the word, whether it's the word preached in worship or, or read in private, we are convicted of some sin and we, we turn from it. That's a form of the Lord's pruning of us. Whenever God brings his word to our mind and causes us to repent, it's in the form of pruning. We've got to be thankful for that. 
Whenever it's something we learn from God's word that we didn't know before, whenever we learn, relearn something from his word that we end up using to keep us from some sin later on down the road, that too is something the Lord uses as a form of pruning. One pastor had interesting comments to say in this regard. He said this, he said, This means that we must come to God's word not merely to learn spiritual facts, but to bring our heart under the pruning knife of our loving father, the vine dresser. He says, this saying is true. Soft preaching creates hard hearts. And hard preaching creates soft hearts. Therefore, we should seek not only comforting and uplifting messages when we attend the preaching in the church or when we read our Bibles. Rather, we should seek the truth that would cut away our sin and challenging teachings on holiness that will stimulate spiritual growth. That should be the desire of our hearts when we come under the word. Whether it's here at church or in our private times, we have the desire that this would be a time that God uses to bring out his hedge trimmers and chop off those areas that are preventing us from growing to be more like him. I want to look next at this, uh, verses 4 and 5 and consider this idea of abiding in Christ. This is a word that's used a lot here, abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Look at verses uh, 4 and 5. It says, abide in me and I in you is the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Throughout these passages, these particular view verses, Jesus tells us over and over again how it is important for us to abide in him if we hope to live and bear fruit. And, and that term abide is not a, it's not a common word. I think uh, when, the King James, when the King James translated this word to abide, it was a common word back in that day. But this term abide has caused a bit of confusion over, uh, among God's people over the years. Simply put, the word abide means to stay. It means to remain that's the point of abiding in Jesus. It is staying or remaining in him. Because that's what it means to persevere in Christ Jesus. False believers will be cut off from the vine either on this side of eternity or the other. That distinction will be made between the two groups. In the end, all that really matters is going to be those who abide in Christ, who have stayed and remained in Christ, and those who have not. Those who truly belong to Christ are those who will stay attached to Jesus both now and forever. Which is to say, again, true believers will persevere to the end. Abiding in Christ is saying that those who have remained and stayed in Christ will persevere to the end. There's no question about that. True believers will never fall away. True believers will persevere to the end. Now the key to that and the key to bearing fruit here is abiding in Jesus. And we don't abide in Christ through some mystical way. Rather, we abide in Christ by remaining in him, which we can only do by remaining in his means of grace that he's given us each day. That's how you abide, abide, remain, and stay in his grace. It's by being in the means of grace. So thus, abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ means worshiping him publicly and privately. Serving him inside and outside the church, being continually in his word and praying to him, taking part in the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of the church. That's what it means to remain, stay, and abide in Christ. Friends, it would do us well to consider that question. The answer to the question of whether or not you're saved is the answer to this question Are you abiding in Christ? Are you in Christ? 
It's not some act or some outward act you did 12 years ago or when you were a kid at VBS somewhere. No, what it means to be a Christian is right now, are you abiding, trusting, remaining, staying in Christ? Are you serving with your life today? That's what it means to be a Christian. I want to end with this, this final statement, this final heading here. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing, dot, 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 that last. Now, why would I add that? We know the text says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you trying to add to Scripture? No, but I just thought about this verse. Jesus says here, apart from me, you can do nothing. But when you think about it, there are plenty of things that can be done apart from Christ. The proof's all around us, isn't it? Every day, we see people making a living apart from Christ. Raising kids apart from Christ. Supporting charities apart from Christ. Getting off drugs and alcohol apart from Christ. Living outwardly moral lives apart from Christ. Counseling people apart from Christ. Being members of a church apart from Christ. But the point Jesus is making is that apart from him, there will be nothing that lasts. There will be no fruit which will glorify the Father apart from him. Friends, apart from him, people don't bear fruit, good fruit, in their vocations, in their homes. They don't bear good fruit in their churches. The bottom line is this, apart from him, you cannot make it as a Christian. Jesus is our lifeline. He is our source. It's all him. Christianity is not a matter of simply being good boys and good girls. We don't reign in Christ by good works of our own doing or by living good, morally upright lives. The source of remaining in Christ and abiding in Christ, it's not found in us at all. If we belong to God, we have His Spirit living in us. And when we're united to His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the one who gets the glory in the end because it's His work. That's why this all ties together. Because friends, if, if you proclaim that you're a Christian and yet you're not bearing any good fruit, it's not your reputation that's at stake. That's why discipline in the church is important. You are saying that God is the one who's not producing fruit in you. Which means you're saying that he's a liar. That he's not faithful to you. Friends, this is, this is why it is that true Christians will always bear good fruit. Because it's all of God's work. And if God has saved you, he will grow you and he will cause you to bear good fruit. And if he doesn't, it's not on him. Note this. I want to look at verses 7 and 8 as we close. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I want you to note again that God doesn't want us just to bear a little bit of fruit. What does he say? That's not his goal. His goal is that we would bear much fruit. Some people think that all they need to be concerned with is getting saved and that's it. I just really need to believe the gospel message. I've done that a long time ago and now it's great, man. I can just live however I want. No. God says for those who belong to him, his desire for their lives is that they would be one that bears much fruit. See, some of us are really, really nice looking branches. And we've got, we've got beautiful green leaves and we're pleasant to look at. Outside, we look healthy. We look like we could be a vine that, or could be a branch that produces good fruit. But the Father isn't simply out to have good looking vines. He desires those branches not to have leaves 
or to be beautiful. He desires them to bear fruit, real fruit, those good works that he's working in and through us. So our goal in all of this is just to be mindful. Let us pray that God would grant us the grace to examine ourselves even today, that we would be found truly united to Christ, that we might have good reason to be assured that we belong to him as we give consideration to how he has worked in us and and, and through us over the days, months, and years we've been walking with him. And friends, let me just tell you, one of the particular points of the sermon, if you're walking through a moment of affliction right now, If in your life you have a great deal of difficulty or affliction that you're walking through, I pray that you're encouraged. Christians are the only people that ought to be encouraged in affliction. Because our God's faithful to not waste it. Our God's so faithful and loving to us that even in the midst of our heartbreak and trial and difficulty, He is bearing the fruit of causing us to look more like His Son, the Lord Jesus. What a faithful God that is. What a faithful God. And if you're facing despair right now, be encouraged. Your life is completely in his hands if you're in him. He is molding you and shaping you out into the image of Christ. I mean, think about this. We've we've walked through trials before. Many of us who are walking through affliction know. We've seen in the past how past affliction has caused us to depend more on Jesus. And if that's the result of affliction, then praise God for the affliction. Because that's the ultimate goal in life, isn't it? That we would ever more be dependent upon Jesus. That we would not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel, but we'd lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. But those things can't happen. Friend, if you're walking through a difficult time right now, I just want you to know, be encouraged. God's faithful and he's using it. He does not waste an ounce of your suffering. Not one. Praise God for his faithfulness. Would you please join your hearts with me in prayer as we stand?